Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, and in a moment I'll read verses 15 through 23 to you, and really Romans 6 is about how we resist and fight against sin, and we do that primarily through the Christian's identity. We have been united with Christ such that whatever Christ has gained for us and won through salvation comes to us. That blessing, that benefit comes to us such that our identity is principally about who we are. In other words, is principally about whose we are, who we belong to. You see that reflected Romans chapter 6 verse 5 for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In this passage, verses 15 through 23, is about that resurrection life. What does that resurrection life look like? And we see that, so follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how thankful we are that indeed the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray, show us the resurrection power that guides and leads us to live a life that is pleasing to you and gives you the honor and glory. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I was watching the Olympics with Tracy last week, and it was an event, the 400-meter hurdles. So one lap around the track, jumping the hurdles. And of course, uh, in the, the good old USA, Sydney McLaughlin won uh, the heat that I was watching. So it was a heat of 400-meter Hurdles and Sydney McLaughlin and Dalila Muhammad would end up one two for the USA. So, USA, USA. And this was just a heat. 
and the runner from Great Britain, Jesse Knight, Jesse Knight, came out fast. The gun went off, came out fast. In fact, had the second fastest time off the blocks. But of that 400 meters, her race lasted maybe about 12 meters. I don't know if you saw this. I linked to it in my Facebook page. She tripped before she got to the first hurdle. And you know how those hurdles have like a crossbar across the top and then that empty space and then that metal part of the hurdle? She fell into that empty space. And she was just devastated. I, my heart broke for her. Because you think about it for a moment, I mean, it was not four years of training. Five years of training. And right then and there for her event, and she had a promising chance to medal in this event, she didn't even get over one hurdle. She stumbled and fell. It gets worse. She's a teacher back in England. So, of course, all her students are crushed. The entire school, the staff, the teachers that were behind her in her effort to improvise hurdles during a pandemic and lockdown and try to figure out ways to train all of it for nothing because she stumbled. And there's no, and then she, no, it just ended there. And she was, of course, crying. And I'm sure everyone who was cheering for Jesse Knight were just devastated because her race ended on a stumble. And so, as I mentioned, when I saw that, I was just crushed for her. And when you think about her situation, you know, a lot of us, Maybe some of us in the Christian life stumble like that. Maybe we're out of the blocks fast, we're looking good, we're running along, and then from out of nowhere, we stumble. It can be a devastating stumble, as is the case when people talk about deconversion. Have you ever heard of this terminology, deconversion? These are people who tell a story of being a Christian, and then they deconvert is the language that they use. In other words, they come to renounce uh, their faith. I mean, some, some are, were prominent Christian authors, like Joshua Harris, has a deconversion. Now, we know that uh, true faith always lasts to the end. But deconversion is a kind of stumbling. And then in your own life, you might have experienced the ups and downs of the Christian life. I mean, what is the, if we were to chart the Christian life, what would it look like? It would look like an investment in GameStop stock, wouldn't it? Up and down, up and down. It is not this idea of a straight line progress. But the process of sanctification is something which has a lot of ups and downs. It has stumbles in it 
for sure. And this kind of spiritual stumbling is part of our fallen nature, and it's part of living in a fallen world that works at cross-purposes to the gospel. But it is the power of the resurrection, the power of that empty tomb that enables us, though we stumble, and I think back to, oh, thanks, Jesse I think back to Jesse Knight. You know, that's the kind of Olympics I would have. When you stumble, when you are tempted, when you encounter difficult and hard things in your Christian life, we have the power of the resurrection. We have this power that enables us to live for Jesus under extreme circumstances. However, why is it we only talk about the resurrection at Easter? We don't talk about the reality of the empty tomb and how the victory of Jesus over death impacts our daily life. Well, Paul talks about it here in this section of Romans 6, showing us that to be united to Christ is indeed to be united to his death but it is also to be united in his resurrection life, that the power of the resurrection empowers us to get up when we stumble and to finish the race. I am interested as a pastor that people would finish the race. It might not look pretty, and it doesn't have to. But to finish the race is to live a resurrected life. That resurrection impacts not just eternal life, but let me tell you this, eternal life is so good that it has present life implications. And that's what this section is about. So how do we characterize this resurrected life? This resurrected life, if we're united to Christ in His resurrection, what should our life look like? that we would not give up, that even when we stumble, we would be steadfast and in the midst of a world that would discourage us and want us to compromise. And so the first part of this passage deals with that the resurrection life is about being a slave of righteousness. A slave of righteousness, in particular, presenting our members as slaves to righteousness. Look with me in verse 15. That's slaves of righteousness is really the first part of the passage we're looking at, verses 15 through 19. And this passage begins with these two questions. What then, look at verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And the answer is given us there by no means. Now, this sounds a lot like how we started Romans 6, doesn't it? Look at Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And the point being made is the purpose of grace is not to give us a license for sin or to be able to say, well, God will forgive me anyways. That isn't the purpose of grace. That, that is not Christianity. No, instead, the reality of grace and being saved by Christ means that I am free from my sin and I'm not free to do anything I want, but I'm free to do whatever 
he wants, which is true freedom. And so if we properly preach the gospel, that it is a free gift, that God is forgiving of all our sin, then we might be tempted to ask this question. Well, if God forgives, why can't I just go out and sin more and have more forgiveness? And so the answer is we would never live this way if this is our identity, who God has rescued us to be. In verse, so grace does not give us a license to sin more, but instead empowers us to resist sin. Look in verse 16. This question is asked, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. Now, this idea of presenting uh, should call to mind Romans 12.1, present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. And the idea here is that whatever way you go, either as slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness, either way, we're talking about people who are compelled, compelled, controlled by either their own desires or God's desires. Slavery in the Roman world was very prominent, and what the Apostle Paul is doing, if you look down in verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. The Apostle Paul is looking out into Roman society, and he is noticing the institution of Roman slavery, which I'm not an expert on, but you can look that up on the internet. The institution of Roman slavery was different than the American idea of slavery. Roman slaves could earn their freedom. Roman slaves were not slaves for a lifetime. There wasn't this cruelty there was cruelty, but it was not a constant uh, thing with Roman slavery. So Roman slavery was different than the American uh, slavery. But the commonality here still is communicated through this verse 19 analogy that the Apostle Paul is using. Slaves are not their own. They are bought with a price. Their time is not their own. And their purpose is to serve another. And so the point Paul is making here is that we have been free from being slaves of sin because the power of sin has been broken in our life. The power of sin is broken through the righteousness of Christ. Through his death on the cross, the penalty of sin has been satisfied in Christ such that Look at verse 14, back up into the previous passage. For sin will have no dominion over you. The power and the penalty of sin have been broken through Christ, freeing us from being slaves of sin that we might become slaves of righteousness. And this is a cause for us to give thanks. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
The heart is the location where motivations come from. And to be obedient to the heart is to understand that we are, and we truly are, under obligation to serve the king of this universe. But the obligation to serve him does not lead to a compulsion, but instead to a thanksgiving where we are joyful in our service to our king who has rescued us, bought us, delivered us from another kind of slavery, namely to sin that leads to death. Look at verse 18. Having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. And then I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural uh, limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Here's the application. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And so the point being made here is that we have been freed from one kind of death-giving slavery, to another kind of slavery that is life-giving. It is a willing slavery to the one who delivered us and our hearts overflow with gratefulness for the true freedom and life he has given us in the gospel. Everyone, in fact, serves someone. We sort of think of true freedom as absolute autonomy. And people may believe that right up until the point federal agents kick in their doorway and enforce tax laws on them. No one is absolutely free except God. And this point is made by Bob Dylan in 1980, he wrote a song, it's on the album, Slow Train Coming, and you might remember that song, and uh, parents, you can look it up for your kids uh, on the internet there, where everything still lives. Uh, Bob Dylan wrote the song, Gotta Serve Somebody, and you might remember that song. The first verse goes like this, you may be an ambassador to England or France, you may like to gamble, you might like to dance, you may be the heavyweight champion of the world, you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, and the point is made, but you got to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody, well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody, and that's the point. The point is, it doesn't matter who you are. You may be a powerful or successful person, but you are still serving someone or something. If we serve our idols in our sin, it leads to death. If we serve God, it leads to life, thanksgiving, joy in the gospel. You know, John Lennon, it was reported, was so angry about this song that about uh, six months later, he released the song, You Gotta Serve Yourself. You Gotta Serve Yourself. We all serve someone or something. 
And by that, I mean you take your time, your talent, and your treasure, and you orient that to someone or something. And if, by Christ's power, you have been redeemed, then you orient that to your Savior. And it brings you a kind of life-giving power. The power that left the tomb empty. The power to resist sin and temptation. The power to serve and live for more than just yourself. As we think about and you evaluate your life, I mean, think about it for a minute. Where are your time, your talent, and your treasure heading? Think about that. What are your priorities? If the greatest priority in your life is to make your life comfortable or to make your life more comfortable, this is not an adequate goal. It is not an adequate goal for, to hold up to and live your life for the comfortable life. But instead, God comes and he rescues us from serving ourselves and he delivers us into a meaningful life such that whatever calling we have in our life, if we give him glory and willingly serve him, we are grateful that he has freed us from sin to bring us into this life of righteousness. So think about your own life. Where are your time, your talent, and your treasures heading towards? I read it one, one way uh, in a book on worship. Where does the smoke of your life, who is that smoke, the sacrifice of your life, who is that offered to because the smoke is going up in everyone's life. No one escapes serving someone or something. So look at your own life. Think about what you're dedicated to. Think about your priorities as Jesus has called us to serve the high king of heaven. So we're talking about the resurrected life. How do we characterize this resurrected life? And we've talked about presenting our members as slaves to righteousness. The resurrected life is also about the fruit of that life, the fruit of the resurrected life. And this is in verses 20 through 23. We read in verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit, verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? You know, think about it for a moment. Uh, if you're a person who was not raised in a Christian home and you came to Christ later in your life, uh, if we were to sit around and maybe even go around this sanctuary and talk about the things we are ashamed of that we did, the things we have remorse for, it would be painful. It would be sad. Maybe even a bit depressing. Why is that? Why is that? I mean, think about it for a moment. You can be a person who is ultra successful, ultra wealthy, but all of it apart from Christ. If your heart does not belong to Christ, if you have not repented of your sin, where does it all end up? Look in verse 21. For the end of those things 
is death. The end of those things. That's that end, that's that Greek word telos. And it speaks of sort of where all the universe is headed, the ultimate purpose of things. What are you living for? Where does the smoke of your life go up and offer praise to? Because no matter what you achieve or how wealthy you are, if you gain the whole world, verse 21, for the end of those things is death. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin, that's the good news. The gospel sets us free and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, the fruit of that life, we're comparing fruits here. One is, you know, in your trash can, the, the juice that collects at the bottom of the trash can. Maybe, maybe your family's smaller than, than mine. But that, that juice at the bottom of the trash can, that's where a life of sin leads to. It is death. It is not pleasant to smell the stench of death. But the fruit of a life offered to God as an offering... The fruit of that life leads to sanctification. And sanctification is our understanding. It's a work of God by His grace whereby our spiritual life is weeded. The bad is pulled out. The sin, the sinful desires are pulled out of our life. You know, my favorite way to weed things is not to weed things. You wait till your grass grows dormant and then you just spray weed killer on it. That's a lot easier than all that bending, pulling. But that's not what God does in our life. Weed by weed, he shapes and forms our character to where the things we used to laugh at or the things we used to do those have changed and our desires from the inside out are changed and he weeds our spiritual heart that our character might look like Jesus looked like. That the fruits of the Spirit, which you read, uh, heard read earlier from Galatians, might be in our life that we might reflect the love and the gentleness and the humility of our Savior. It all happens through sanctification. The Weed by weed pulling by God's grace that he does in our life. In that process, while it is sometimes painful, it leads to life. This life that God has called us. A new life, the eternal life. <clears throat> so look in verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin, have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end. There's the repetition of that word, telos. What is the purpose? What is the ultimate goal here? Not death, but eternal life. Life eternal. A life so good that its future reality leads to present implications. The end so good that it 
causes us to live now differently than we did before, differently in praise to the one who redeemed us, who bought us, who saved us. And we read this wonderful summary statement in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. What you get from sin is death. The stuff at the bottom of the trash can. For the wages of sin is death. And look at this contrast. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The fruit of your life is what your life is bringing about, what it is yielding. And I encourage you to think of that, not just at the end of your life, not just what will people say about me, but it's how are people experiencing me when I don't get my way or on my worst day, how are, they ex how are the people around me experiencing me? And what do they see in my life that would point them to Jesus? What am I like to be around when I don't get my way? Don't just ask, at the end of my life, what will they say about me? What am I like at my crankiest? These are the kinds of questions we need to ask ourselves, whether we understand how the fruit of our life, what our life is yielding, is given over to the one who has made us a slave of righteousness. And whatever your life yields, it either leads to more life or it is life-taking. And I tell you this to say there is a temptation. I think this is especially true if you're younger. Uh, there is a temptation to look out at others and, and, you know, you might see this as you're scrolling through social media. And to sort of think for a moment, as a Christian, I'm really missing out. They, they look like they're having a lot of fun in their sin. And I'm missing out because I am a goody-two-shoes Christian who is called not to live that way. And I feel like I'm missing out. And those of us who came to Christ later in life, we would contradict that, wouldn't we? We would tell stories of heartbreak, remorse, terrible sin and hurting other people. And we would say that in the time we messed up our life, we've spent the rest of our life, praise Jesus, with him fixing the years that we didn't live for him. And we would talk about how we wish we would have met Christ earlier because the only thing we were missing out on was death. And I think as a church community, we come into play here because often we, are, we have a flair for the dramatic. And we want to hear sort of a dramatic testimony, someone who lived a sordid life, and then was totally transformed by the gospel. And that's important, and certainly you see that reflected in Paul's own uh, conversion story. But I want to say as a church community, we ought to appreciate at least equally our covenant children's story. The ordinariness of saying, 
I grew up in a Christian home, and I never knew a day I didn't love Jesus because mom and dad did what they were supposed to. They raised me in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's important. And that's worth celebrating. Why is it? Because without this dramatic transformation, there is an inner transformation that, though it seems everyday and prosaic, is no less a demonstration of the power of the gospel. We ought to praise God that someone hasn't wasted their life, a portion of their life, but instead they never knew a day they didn't walk with Jesus We ought to praise God that, yes, he is forgiving, but we should praise God with those who have always been raised to know him, that they don't need to pull out Joel 2.25 that says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. There is, what are you missing out on? Remorse, heartbreak, death. You're not missing out on anything, living the Christian life. In fact, it is life eternal. Leslie, I'll conclude with this. Leslie Newbigin was a missionary to India. Leslie Newbigin, and before he died in 1998, he was asked by a journalist, he had given his life really to southern India and the church there and the progress of the gospel. And a journalist asked him one time, Well, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the state of the church in southern India? And Leslie Newbigin's response was, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He would go on to say, the gospel is not something to be optimistic or pessimistic about. The gospel is a celebration of an empty tomb, something that in point of fact happened. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, it's so popular now to be all negative about the future or negative about the situation in our world or country. And I want to tell you, I want to warn you as a Christian Are you implicitly denying the resurrection with your negativity? Is our worry and anxiety about the future a betrayal of the thing we should believe in? Namely, Christ's victory over sin and death. Namely, Romans chapter 6, 14, which tells us sin will have no dominion over our life anymore that Christ has delivered us. Do you believe in the resurrection and do you live with that joy and that privilege of what it means to belong to Christ? Do you live for a future in which one day you will be free from sin and death shall be no more? I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is how we live the resurrection life. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you that indeed you have freed us from the dominion of sin and death. That in Christ, through our union with him, we enjoy eternal life and we 
so look forward to that blessed life that it has implications on how we live now, that together as your people we might offer up all that we are, time, talent, treasure, for your glory. And we pray that by so doing, we pray this week, even in the midst of the terrible things that happen in a fallen world, we pray you would remind us of the wonderful truth of the resurrection as something we don't just celebrate on Easter. We don't just commemorate it every time we get together on a Sunday. We live it every day because you have bought us, set us free that we might give you glory. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.